much. It's great to be back. Um, I think it was about three years ago since I was last here. I come from a nation called Burundi, which some of you have heard about purely because uh, I've been here speaking before. I'm going to have some pictures come up on the screen just to give a bit of context to my message here uh, this morning. So that's, if you didn't know where it was, that's where it is. Speak a, speak a language called Kirundi, that would be a greeting you'd get in Kirundi out there. Size of Wales, so not a big place, and uh, still in a hell of a mess. Uh, keep going on the slides, let's just run through these to get them out of the way. Uh, so that's what it's been, particularly since 2015. So when I went out in 1998, it was the most dangerous country in the world. Eventually, after 13 years of civilish war, it uh, picked up 2005 peace, a new season, and then 2015 contested elections, it descended back uh, into a conflict area and uh, aborted coup, a failed coup, and, and what happens when coups fail is that, you know, there's a mop-up operation that's been very, very grim, and we've gone back to being the hungriest country in the world with the highest rate of malnutrition, the most miserable country in the world, according to a UN survey, and maybe the second or third poorest country in the world. So it's been desperately grim. Keep going on these. I've wept, I've shed a lot of tears. My heartbeat, if you like, is how far is too far when Jesus went that far, and he didn't go that far for us to be nice people. You went that far for all of us to get our hands dirty, be it in fostering, be it in just getting, you know, crossing our street to our needy neighbors, helping out single mums that are trying to balance three different jobs and keep the show on the road. There are so many people who are needy, aren't there? And you don't have to come out to Burundi or Africa to do it. Uh, so that's to disarm you in terms of bringing you a challenge this morning. You know, I'm not, I'm not saying you've got to be like me or do what I'm doing. You know, we've all got different skills and gifts. And uh, what is that going to look like for you? I'd love you to get hold of that. So that's uh, Choose Life. It's a daily shot in the arm. I know several dozen of you have already got it here, but uh, grab that afterwards over there, 13 quid or 10 quid, whatever. But it's, it's a daily shot in the arm. You know, are we going to choose to live by fear or by faith? Are we going to choose urgency or apathy? You know, a whole bunch of ones like that. So do grab that. Can't be rubbish. It was voted devotional of the year. So <laughs> that's our charity out there. Been there 19 years. You know, incredible stuff going on. It is in the darkest places that the light shines brightest. And we're involved in outreach on campuses. We built a number of orphanages, schools, pioneered the first Christian AIDS project out there. Um, indigenous missionary movement, uh, church planting, see incredible stuff. If you want a picture of what malnutrition looks like, that, that is my Canadian friend's daughter there, Alma. She's four years old, and the girl whose hand she's holding is four years old. And that's sick and wrong, isn't it? Because that means she's going to be, if she's still alive, you know, stunted development, you've got no chance. Already your brain capacity is, is, is shrunk, and that's 56% of the population. So it's tough. This is the man I'm handing on the ministry to after 19 years. He's absolutely phenomenal. And uh, we've, he, he's built his own movement and then left that to join us in terms of taking over what is a coordination of 11 different organizations doing nation shaping shake, and shaking stuff. So his name's Anesiphor. I love telling stories of what he's been up to because together over the last 12 years, every summer we sent out hundreds. Those of you who heard me speak before, I tell these stories. But, uh, you know, we sent out hundreds of people out there into the community to go and be Jesus' hands and feet and mouthpiece. And they go and do what we read about in the Bible. We read about the Acts of the Apostles, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Jesus' teaching then. He says, you go and do likewise. And so, you know, that, that's typically just going out and talking to people. And then suddenly with some people, you know, they'll be very angry. So one lady went, F off, you know, we're not interested in your Jesus. And, uh, you know, what do you do when someone says that? He said, all right, I respect you. But as they were retreating, this lady called them back and said, well, now hang on, I'll let you talk to my village. But first of all, heal this demon-possessed girl. So basically she was saying, don't just talk a good game, show us the power. And so they gathered around, the whole village came to watch, good spectator sport, and they, they prayed over this girl in the name of Jesus. And all those different voices of demons were identified and cast out in Jesus' name. And on the spot, that lady who two minutes earlier, five minutes earlier saying F off is now on her knees with 20 other people in the, in the village giving their lives to Christ. 
Loads of those stories. I'm talking fast because I know that time is going to be against me as, uh, as we plow through this morning. But, uh, so that's not my agenda, showing those stories. But I do want us to have a bigger view of God and that he is massive and that he is powerful and he wants to use you. That's a, a witch doctor burning his chance publicly. You know, if you mess with a witch doctor, he's going to curse you and your two-year-old will die or you'll be barren or whatever. You know, and, it's, uh, and people live in fear of the witch doctor. And then our guys showed up and he started doing his juju stuff and, and then uh, one of them spoke the name of Jesus and he just fell down under the power of God. And he came to a few moments later and said, could you come back in a couple of days? And uh, they did and he'd assembled the whole village. And uh, as they shared the good news... And the power of the name of Jesus, he, he, he burnt his chance publicly submitting to the higher power. And 50 people in that village gave their lives to Christ. We've probably seen 100,000 people come to Jesus over, over that time uh, of, of 12 years of doing that. This, this, this is just a beautiful story because this guy was the ugliest guy in Burundi. 20 years ago, he fell in a fire, an epileptic fit. His name's Freddie. And uh, so, you know, he would have a hoodie on and no one would want to talk to him and he'd be so ashamed and he had a stunted hand like this and he'd go and beg and Kayanza. And then uh, my friend Ali, a Canadian lady, got alongside him. And that, that is after about 70 hours of plastic surgery, 10 years later. Uh, and then it's an ongoing story, but next one. And that is him now after 100 hours of plastic surgery. And... Uh, 100 hours of plastic surgery, 11 operations, I think the longest one was 16 hours, and it's, you know, it's just the God of the impossible, isn't it? And he's just, he's just graduated with a distinction, and he's got his job, and he's found Floride, his babe to marry. <laughs> isn't that awesome? Praise the Lord. Next one. That's my team. So went out there as a single nut job, really, and expected to die, didn't die. Got, Lord gave me a wife, gave me three children, and... Uh, and I've told this story before, but there's a twist on this story. So, so let's go to the next one. My daughter's named after this girl. And if you want a title to this morning's talk, by the way, it is Radical Grace. I want to look at Radical Grace. And uh, so my daughter is named after this girl. This girl, as I held her in my arms in 1997, I think it was, and I was told her story, how she'd started her life thrown away down the toilet. And the reason she hadn't drowned is this rejected fetus was that her neck was caught in the U-bend of the toilet, and she was picked out by the person who's about to go to the loo, got pooing themselves in the process, and she was cleaned off, and she was fed through a straw like a little bird, and now she's fine, and 18 years later, next one, that's her. And I love it, I love it how in, in God's weaving the tapestry of our lives together, 18 years later, she ended up being our babysitter, next one. And my, my friend who rescued her gave her the name, my favorite girl's name, and, and, and so the, the little white one is named after the big black one there, uh, um, and that is that they're both called grace. And I love grace, you know, because that's my story, and I hope it's your story. It doesn't matter whether we're multi-murdering, rapists, pillaging idiots in Central Africa or very self-absorbed people here in Nottingham. We all need God's grace, don't we? And he reaches down, he picks us up, and he cleans us off. He says, you're beautiful, you're made in my image of infinite worth. Now, come on, live, live for me. That's grace. And then, yeah, so this is like two weeks ago. We sent her on scholarship to America to study journalism, and she wasn't just a great... African student, she got the top award in her whole intake studying journalism and just qualified. God's amazing. Whether it's Freddie, the melted face guy, whether it's Grace who starts her life down the toilet, God can do miracles. He can do anything. And if your life is going through a hell of a time this morning, God is amazing and amazing grace is on offer to you. And that might mean that you'll stay with some scars. But actually, we can either settle for bumper stickers and slogans or we can embrace scars. Amen? 
So I think we'll stop there. Is there another one? Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll talk about that in a second. You can get rid of that. You, you can see that in your, in, in your, in your mind now. Let's, let's leave the slides. By the way, wherever I go, I say, please pray for us. That's why we're still in the game. That's why we're still alive. I'm quite convinced uh, I left a few days ago on Saturday night. 25, 26 people were, were murdered. Um, a family burnt alive. A whole bunch of people just shot to death. It's, 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 it's a hell of a place. And yet that's been the call of God in my life for the last 19 years. It, it has been uh, full of tears, full of weeping, but full of incredible joys. And, uh, you know, how far is too far when he goes that far for us? And so please pray for us. And you don't have to, but I know a whole bunch of you do already. And that's why our work is so fruitful. So there's a sheet of paper in each row right now. It's going to put it, go its way backwards. Don't sign up if you don't want to. Don't sign up if you're already on it. But if you want to pray for us and keep in touch about six times a year, uh, do. And uh, that's a benefit I leave as I fly back tomorrow the next day, back to Burundi. Okay, radical grace. So have that picture of us being picked out of the toilet as for starters. And I'm going to tell you, as we look at Luke, Luke chapter 7, so that's going to be coming up, but uh, before I read that out, which is an encounter of Jesus with a prostitute. I don't know if any of you have ever visited prostitutes. I mean, stats are 1 in 10 English men, so it's bound to be a number of us. I... Um, years ago, I hired out two prostitutes for a night. It was, uh, it was very risky because I'm quite high profile in the country. People know me. And uh, I thought my cover might be blown. I've got to do this really carefully. And so I got a friend who I trusted to hire these girls out for me to negotiate a good price because for a white man, obviously, they're going to ask for more. And, um, and these girls came to the hotel. I was bricking myself and uh, never, obviously never done something like that before. And I went in there, sat down at the table. These two girls doled up. And, uh, and I said, ladies, tonight, I just want you to have a night off. And uh, I want you to go and stuff your face, go for a hot shower, do whatever you want. The only deal is that you cannot solicit any business in this hotel. And uh, I'll come back in the morning and we'll see what you want to whether you want to carry on that trade. And so I went back, prayed with my wife, Lizzie, and we came in the next day, had breakfast with them. And these girls, what was their story? Had, you know, did my, does my daughter Grace, when I ask her, you know, age, what is she, eight now? Grace, what do you want to do when you grow up? I want to be a prostitute. No, you don't say that, do you? No, you know, no one on the planet has that aspiration. Why does it happen? It's because they fall through the cracks. It's because if we don't foster those kids, they will end up on the streets. They will end up in prisons. They will be prostitutes selling their body. And, and those girls, what had happened to them? Well, one had six siblings. They were both orphans, of course. And there's no social security in Burundi. So there's no room for us to judge, is there? We are all to be, if we choose, to be recipients of grace. And for some of us, it's harder than others. And there's a lovely part, that ongoing story. So that picture was just of, of uh, Doreen's shop. So, you know, this is three years later now. Ida is still studying. They both joined their local church and discipleship groups. They're going really well. They made good choices. And so she's got this attempt at a small business there. And, uh, yeah, Ida is, is still studying. And that's an ongoing story, and it's messy, and it's still hard for them. But they are experiencing God's grace as former prostitutes. So now let's look at Luke chapter 7, verse 36. And uh, we can read it, you follow it there. So, And, you know, this is a familiar story, right? But I want you to be struck afresh with it. And uh, there are so many cultural signs and nuances that we'll miss because we're from Nottingham and not from the Middle East. So we'll uh, unpack those in a second. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have supper with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. 
a woman in that town who, who lived a sinful life, learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. And then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him, what sort of a woman she is, that she's a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had enough money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. And then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house, you didn't give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You didn't put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown, but whoever has been forgiven little loves little. And Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. And the other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to them, when your faith has saved you, go in shalom, go in peace. Oh, it's one of my favorite encounters of Jesus in the Bible. For those of you that get turned on by sort of textual analysis, look at this. This is just interesting. Next, next, picture, next slide. So, you know, we miss it because we, we, we don't speak the original language. And there are, there are loads of this going on in the scriptures. And... Uh, in the, in the Gospels, there's several examples of this, but this, you know, Luke has chosen to put this drama, it's composed in seven scenes, ring composition. And so, you know, it, it's, it's very tidy how it's packaged. It's introduction, conclusion at the end, then you've got the outpouring of the woman's love in action as the next bookend with the outpouring of the woman's love in retrospect. In between that, you've got a dialogue, and in between that, the crux of it is the parable. And we miss that, don't we? Because... Uh, because it's in a different language and stuff like that. So some of, some of us really love that sort of juicy textual, ana textual analysis. That's good. And there's even within the verses, next one, there's that. So that's verse 37, 38. It sort of builds uh, and goes back out again. Anyway, it's a beautiful encounter with Jesus. As we kick in looking at those scriptures, I'm going to actually start and tell you the first time I fell in love, the first time I fell in love, or maybe it was lust, I don't know. Um, but uh, it was this girl called Jeannie. We were at school. I was at the American School of Algiers. My dad was a businessman out there, and I saw this beautiful blonde American girl walk through the playground. I thought, cha-ching. And I, I, I really wanted to woo her. I sort of pursued her, some might say. I stalked her. I, uh, I, I got to know everything there was to know about Jeannie. I knew who she lived, you know, where she lived, who she hung out with, her hobbies. Um, and I, you know, I went to sleep thinking about her, I dreamt about her, I woke up thinking about her, it was really unhealthy. Um, and I really wanted her to woo, I wanted to woo her so that she would reciprocate these, these emotions towards me. Two massive hurdles had to be overcome first. You know, I was, I was a skinny runt, and uh, she was, already had the hunk school boyfriend whose name, perhaps appropriately, was Randy. Uh, <laughs> that was the first, you know, lots of Americans call Randy, we don't get any Brits call Randy, do we? That was, um, that was the first obstacle. The second obstacle was actually even bigger, and that was, the, was that Jeannie, Jeannie was 13 years old, 
And I, I was five. <laughs> now, why do I tell you that story? I got to know everything there was to know about Jeannie. But I never spoke to her. I didn't know her. And there are loads of people in this country who are the same. You can know loads about Jesus. You can completely miss who he is. And um, as we look at this, there's one guy, there's a book called Not a Fan by a guy called Carl Eidelman. I want to credit him with a whole bunch of stuff that I'm sharing with you. Brilliant sort of insights into the culture. I want to say that up front. But Jesus in the Bible, in, in Matthew chapter 15, verse 8, he's talking about the Pharisees. And he says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And it looks like we've got one of those here. And his name's Simon, so I think this really applies to me. We've got to watch out for it, haven't we? You see, we can study God's word, but we can keep hold of our heart. We can have lots of knowledge about God, but we can never have surrendered our heart to him. Pharisees epitomized that. They had plenty of knowledge of God, but they didn't really know him. It's the difference between knowledge and intimacy. So in Luke chapter 7, Jesus has been invited over for dinner by a Pharisee, Simon, and for him... Inviting a, a visiting rabbi should be a big deal. You know, Jesus should be the guest of honor, but it quickly becomes apparent that Simon's only spending time with him out of a duty or with a mixed motives, an ulterior agenda, rather than to honor him. You see, a few chapters earlier in Luke 4, 24, Jesus has already said no prophet is welcome in his hometown, so he's calling himself a prophet at, at the very least. And so this is almost like the doctrine police are out to check up on him. And that's the scene. And there are certain rules of etiquette in the culture that we could easily miss, and we might get some of them, like the, like the foot washing. We've heard about that. But let's start, first of all, with a customary greeting of an honored guest. Now, you would always kiss your guest. If you felt vaguely you know, friendly or familiar, sort of similar rank, you'd kiss them on the cheek. If you particularly wanted to honor them, you might kiss them on the hand. Now, to, to neglect that would be equivalent to someone ringing on your doorbell and you leaving them uh, maybe just inside the door, but with their coat still on, and you just going back in and watching the TV and ignoring them. It was absolutely unheard of. It was a key part of basic protocols of hospitality. Then there was the foot washing. And we, we know this, don't we? It was done before meals because they had skanky feet from walking around towns and city and dusty and all that sort of stuff. And it had to be done. And it was done by the slave. Or it was done by the lowest ranked person there. Actually, if you really wanted to honor your guests, you might do it yourself. And at the very least, you would give them some water and a towel for themselves. And then with a distinguished guest, you might anoint their head with oil. Olive oil, uh, it was inexpensive, but it would be a particularly hospitable gesture. But when Jesus is at Simon's house, what do we notice? There is no kiss, there's no foot washing, there's no oil anointing. These aren't accidental oversights, they are quite deliberate. Jesus is being ignored and insulted. And everyone would have noticed that around the table. And Jesus could, could have been fully within his rights to say, well, suck it, I'm out of here. You know, I'm, I'm, cl I'm clearly not welcome here. And yet it says, no, he went in and reclined. He's the, he's the first person to recline, and that was reserved for the oldest person there. And surely he wasn't the oldest person there. But he, it's almost like he is setting the, the, the rules as the rules have already been smashed anyway. He's completely at, at peace in that situation. Now, notice the irony of the moment. You've got Simon, who is a Pharisee, and the Pharisees, by the age of 12, they had memorized the first 12 books of the Bible. By the age of 15, they had the Hebrew Bible scriptures all in there, which included over 300 promises of the coming Messiah. 
talking about the coming Messiah, and now smack in front of him is the Messiah, and he's completely missed it. Here is the Messiah whom he hasn't kissed, whose feet he hasn't washed, and whose head he hasn't anointed. He might have known a bit about Jesus, but he didn't know Jesus because Pharisees confuse knowledge and intimacy. And most of us have got GCSE French, although we are muppets of language in this country, aren't we? But uh, in, in English, you've got to know. In, in Kirundi, you've got kumenya. There's one word for to know, whereas in French, what are the two words for to know? Savoir and connaître. There you go. You've got savoir and connaître. And savoir is to know things, and connaître is to know a person. Je te connais. I know you. And Jesus says in John chapter 8, he says, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And you would think that no, there in that context, will be savoir, because the truth is a thing. But no, he uses connaître. Because then in chapter 14 of John, he says, I am the truth. So the truth is a person. Not a thing. And that's what was so lame about me and Jeannie. You know, I knew loads, I had savoir, loads of stuff about her, but I didn't connaître. And Jesus is inviting all of us here. And some of us are right on the edge. And some of us are like, what the heck am I doing here? And, and so, you know, we've got different issues and we're holding back. And he says, I want to know you. I'm not this religious, not all about rules and stuff like that. It's so much more deeper. It's, it's about experiencing this radical grace. And we have Bible studies, and we have Sunday school, and we have devotionals, and we have sermons, and we have podcasts, and, and, and these are all very good, you know. It's good to, to, to do all these things, but you could do all that and completely miss the wood for the trees. And in terms of scripture, you know, Jesus quoted scripture, he showed that he'd valued it and memorized it, but the, the problem isn't knowledge, the problem is that you can have knowledge without intimacy. In fact, knowledge can be a false indicator of intimacy, can't it? Now, clearly, where there is intimacy, there should be growing knowledge, but too often, there is knowledge without intimacy. You know, part of the proof of uh, my intimacy with my wife is knowing loads about her, isn't it? It's knowing about her, her favorite food, her, her, her preferred date night, what she wants to do, you know, knowing the, the, the rhythms of mood swings, you know, at different times of the month. It's about knowing all about her so I can best love her. That's what intimacy is. And the problem is, like the Pharisee in Luke chapter 7, we can confuse knowledge about Jesus for intimacy with him. Now, I just want to test you on this. So what we're going to do is I'm going to test you corporately, your Bible knowledge, all right? So what we're going to do is, is I'm going to, we're going to do Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And we're going to do, I've already given you four, so you can hang on in there for four. And we're going to do the books of the Bible of the New Testament in order. And what you're going to do is as soon as you've got it wrong, you're going to sit back down. So everyone stand up right now. Everyone stand up. Do not be ashamed. No worries at all. But let's see, last man, last woman standing. Let's see how many of them there will be. So just sit down. I'm not going to get there. So no worries. Okay, let's go slowly. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, Philip, Philemon, Hebrews, James, 1 Peter, 2 Peter, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, Jude, Revelation. Look at those beauties! Give them a round of applause. 
So well done, you dozen or so that stay standing, and uh, you know, great effort. And by the way, I'm pretty much sure that all those guys that are still standing, they learned that as kids. And that is why it's so important for us to invest in the youth. I'm passionate about my kids interiorizing scripture and knowing the promises of God, so that because then it stays forever. And so that's an aside. That's not part, really part of the sermon. Please, let's do it with my kids all the time. You know, we're learning a verse so that when they're going through a tough time, well, 1 John 4, 4, the one who is in me is greater than the one who is in the world. Daddy, you can't always be with me, but I do know Hebrews 13, verse 8. God says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. So let's do that as a side, as a challenge. Now, ha- you know, having just praised those guys and given them a bit of glory, I actually want to completely sort of punch that balloon because, you know, actually... God doesn't give it a flying monkey if you know the list of the books of the Bible in order. You know, it's not that important. I mean, it's, it's, it's good, but it's not that crucial. And, you know, maybe, maybe we would love it that, you know, that would be how we got into heaven. Maybe we would love an exam because then you could just tick the right boxes and get the right knowledge and then you'd pass and, yeah, the others can go to hell, but I'm going to be in. And legalists love that, don't they? We love rules because actually, well, it's a false indicator and we can deceive ourselves in terms of thinking we know where we stand. But that is not what God is like. That's not what radical grace is all about. Radical grace, you know, the gospel, is it about not having sex in the wrong context, about not getting drunk? It's so much bigger than that. And in saying that, it's not belittling sin and its consequences and how God is a judge and brings judgment, but mercy triumphs over judgment. And that's what radical grace is all about. So it's not about all these rules, it's about intimacy. And the best biblical word for intimacy, moving to the the Hebrew from the start, it's from Genesis chapter four, verse one. It says, God, sorry, it says, Adam knew his wife. And that Hebrew word is yada. And it's an amazingly rich word because it's, it's, it's a word, you know, there are other words to be used if, if, if um, Moses, in writing that, wanted to say he had sex with his wife or he procreated with his wife. They're different sort of sexual union words, but this was yada. And that word is so rich because what it means, it's the most intimate connection you can have. It's to know completely and to be completely known. It's a beautiful picture of what it, knows, what it means to really know Christ. And if you trace the use of Yadah through the Old Testament, uh, you, you find over and over again it's the same thing. It's God's relationship with us. You know, so in, in Psalm 139, in the first four verses, five times is, is Yadah. Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know my coming out and my going in. Before a word is on my lips, you knew it. And so that, it's a, it's a beautiful, beautiful word. So think about it. It's the same word as the one used between man and wife. It's the same word, the same connection that uh, he, 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 he wants with each one of us. He, he, he already has that. He already knows everything about us. But he knows you and he wants you to know him. And, you know, if we got that, that might just completely, radically alter our whole perception. Instead of identifying ourselves as followers of Jesus based on what we know about him, you'll understand that you're a follower of Jesus, you're a disciple if you yada him. And in Luke chapter 7, we've got this Pharisee who knew all about Jesus, but he didn't know him. His heart was far from him. He didn't know that a visiting rabbi sat at his table was the promised Messiah that he spent countless hours studying about. And so let's get back into, the, into what it's saying in the text. Then Luke, he tells us that a woman comes on the scene. 
whilst they're still eating. And they're likely eating in a sort of open part of the house, courtyardish area, where people could, could watch and maybe even uh, eavesdrop a bit of the conversation. And things get really awkward as she comes up uninvited as a woman to a table of men, as a whore to a table of respectable religious folk. You know, she's smashing every conceivable sort of social protocol and taboo. And, it, you know, it says she is a sinner, verse 37, known prostitute in the village. Now, what gave her the, the, the courage to do that? And now this is extrapolation. This is not from the scripture, but it had to be something like this, didn't it? She must have heard him maybe early in the day. She must have heard him before. And, and, and something from a distance, you know, something happened in her heart. Maybe it was something that he said. What had he said? Had he said something about forgiveness? Maybe as she's in the crowd listening to this guy and she hears something and her, her eyes well up as she discovers that actually God loves her. That he wants to forgive her. That he wants to yada her in a clean, pure way. Maybe she, re she realizes that Jesus can actually put the broken pieces of her lives back together. Or maybe it wasn't his words. Maybe it was his, it was his eyes. Maybe in the crowd, he, he caught a glance of her. And maybe she saw a look that she had never seen in her life. It wasn't a look of judgment or condemnation or lust. It was the purest look of a, a loving father looking with pride and adoration at his precious daughter. She wasn't just a sinner to him, but she was the beloved. And perhaps when Jesus had finished or had gone past, maybe she knew that God did still love her, that it wasn't too late, that there's still hope for someone like me. Anyone feel like that here this morning? I've royally screwed up. I feel filthy. Could be plenty of us, sexual sin, for a start, but it's a whole lot bigger than that. I have messed up. I've got skeletons in the closet I don't want people to know about. I'm living a mask on, and, and yet Jesus penetrates all that. It, it had to be something like that because she is so desperate to see him again, and maybe, maybe she overheard someone saying, he's, tonight he's going to be at Simon the Pharisee's. And that's a dinner, of course, she's not going to be invited to. And she knew it'd be a place of judgment and condemnation, but no, she's just got to see Jesus again. She's desperate, and it takes real courage to enter into that courtyard, but she's so focused on Jesus, she forgets about everything else. She forgets about herself. She is desperate to express the love and affection she has for him. And what she does next is, is impulsive, it's reckless, it's nuts, it's inappropriate even, just the kind of disciples Jesus is after. So picture the scene. The men are reclining at the table. Jesus is reclining at the table. Instead of chairs... You, you've seen it from the old artworks. You know, they're, they're leaning on their elbow, propped up on a cushion. Their feet are away from the table. And she probably brought that perfume to anoint his head and his hands. But, of course, they're out there. And there's no way. That's completely inappropriate for, for, him to re for her to reach over. She couldn't do that. And uh, so there she is. And she, she stands at the filthy feet of Jesus. And the table grows silent. And we've all been in some awkward situations. This would rank right up there, wouldn't it? In terms of, oh, no. What is going on? Everyone's watching. Everyone knows who she is. What is she doing? She looks around the guests, feels that gaze that she's so familiar with of judgment and condemnation. 
Others maybe have got their eyes down. They're just totally embarrassed. Oh, this is so awkward. But, but, but then she looks at Jesus. And he seems to know what's happened in her heart. And he gives her a warm smile. You know, he's delighted that she's come. And uh, as he looks at her with the eyes of a loving father, watching his beautiful daughter entering the room, she's, 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 she's surely, she's never had a man look at her like that. She's completely undone. And the tears begin to flow. They just become to flow. Maybe they start bit by bit. You know, any, any time I can relate to this in terms of being undone was when I was at my, and some of you lads were, you know, when I was at my wedding day and I just turned around and saw my wife. It's <laughs> just snotty, blubbering wreck. Uh, it's just being undone. It's something very, very powerful, isn't it? And, and she falls to the ground. And she begins to, to kiss his feet. And soon the tears are just pouring down her face, and they begin to drip, don't they, on the dirty feet of Jesus. And as she looks at, at, at the muddy streaks, she suddenly realizes that his feet haven't been washed. And maybe actually her tears are even compounded as she realizes the humiliation of what he's been put through. And she can't ask for a towel, can she? So she lets down her hair. Now, we've, we'll all miss this. But in the letting down of her hair, there would have been actual audible gasps around the table. Because for a woman to let down her hair before anyone who is not her husband's, it was legitimate grounds on the spot for divorce. In Middle Eastern culture, a bride on her wedding night lets down her hair for her husband to see for the first time. And it's almost as if this, this gesture of loosening her hair is her, her, her making some form of ultimate pledge to Jesus, of loyalty to Jesus. She begins washing his feet with her tears and drying them with her hair. And then Luke says she's got this alabaster jar of, of ointment. And that, that most likely refers to what all prostitutes had, which is probably a gourd, a flask here, that they'd carry around them the whole time. And I think we can all work out what she would use that for after multiple partners, multiple grim encounters by men that were using her as a slab of meat. And she would use those drops very sparingly just to take away the stench of bodily fluids. And what does she do now? She just pours it all. She pours it all out. Why? She empties out the whole thing. She's not going to need it anymore. She pours this flask, her life, on his feet, and she kisses them over and over. And at the end of the story, we read look down to verse 44. Then, I love this, Jesus, so the woman's here doing that, and the men are here. And Jesus turns to the woman with yada in his eyes. And he says to Simon, respectable Simon, religious Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house, you didn't give me any water for my feet, but she went my feet with tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. And so in the end, the religious leader with all the knowledge is shown to have missed it and the lowest scum of the earth in the eyes of the world, this prostitute who intimately expresses her love for Jesus, she gets it. So beautiful. And so I have a question for you and for me. Who am I most like in that story? Who are you most like in that story? Who do we identify with if we're absolutely honest? And we cannot patronize Jesus. 
by saying he's just a good moral teacher. He doesn't give us that option. Either we've got to believe with the woman or be offended with Simon. Either Jesus is an outrageous egotist or he is the unique agent of God, the mediator of forgiveness to whom it is appropriate to express radical gratitude. Have you ever had an encounter like that with Jesus? When's the last time? How hungry are you this morning for Jesus? It tends to be broken people that are the most hungry, doesn't it? If we're proud and self-sufficient, an encounter like this is going to be challenging. And I guess the deal is, do we recognize we've been forgiven much, or do we think we've been forgiven little? Because Jesus carries on in verse 47. He says, therefore, I tell you, Simon, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown but whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Well, here's praying that all of us here recognize that we have been forgiven much, because we all have. And you're in a bad place if you think you've just been forgiven little. In the early 20th century, there was an outreach in Togo, and uh, these visiting missionaries would bring the gospel for the first time, and, and they preached, and people would stream to the front uh, you know, welcoming this beautiful message of radical grace that they were so counter to you know, their fear of the ancestral spirits and all that sort of stuff. And, and there was one particular lady, an old lady, she was dirt poor, and she came to know Jesus that first night. And as was the custom in that culture, each evening you would bring your stick of bananas or your yam or whatever to put on the altar to express your gratitude for, for what you'd received. And every night for the rest of that week's outreach, that lady felt great pain because she was so poor, she had nothing to offer to bring, uh, to put on the altar. Each evening as other people brought their stuff for, she felt completely inadequate and, and uh, condemned. And then on the last night, and the speaker, she'd been spending time during the week and he saw, saw her growing in her faith and he loved her to bits. And, and on the last night, she came forward and she brought forward this silver coin and laid it on the altar. And the visiting speaker, he's like, oh no, because he knew how poor she was. He's like, that's worth a dollar, that silver coin. A dollar might be 10,000 pounds in today's language. You know, it was, it was a huge sum. And, and he's like, oh no, she just, you know, didn't want to embarrass herself. So she's, ah. anyway, he didn't want to, uh, make a scene. So he waited till after, you know, the people left at the end of the evening, and then he came along side her, sidled up to her, and he said, hey, how's it going, you know? I couldn't help notice that you put that silver coin on the altar. How, how, where did you get that from? How could you afford that? And she started replying. She said, you know, this week, as I've experienced Jesus' grace, radical grace, my life has been tra transformed. Before I was crushed by guilt. I had no hope for today and into eternity. I was scared of the evil spirits. I, I didn't have any kind of assurance. I didn't know I was forgiven. I was, I, I, you know, she just went on expanding on all the incredible outworkings of the implications of the gospel of receiving that grace. I'm a child of the king. I'm, I'm loved. He's forgiven me. There's no guilt, assurance of eternity. And, and she concluded, she said, and I was so desperate to help you, having received so much in this talk, having been forgiven so much, I love so much, and so I wanted to help contribute to you taking the gospel further into the interior, and so I went to the local plantation owner and sold myself as a slave woman for life for that silver coin. 
And that was the gift she laid on the altar that night. How far is too far, guys? Are we playing it safe? Are we wanting to set the parameters of our relationship with Jesus to call the shots? Well, that's a, that's a misunderstanding of how much you've been forgiven. Do we as an individuals and as the congregation, do we love little or do we love much? The biggest test of a healthy church is, is love for God and love for people, isn't it? And I tell you those stories about in Africa, maybe, maybe some of you could feel inadequate, and I don't want anyone to feel inadequate, but you know, not many of us are casting out demons and healing the sick, um, and you could think, you know, only a few people get to do that, but you know, all of us can love. We can all love. You can all cross the road and help that person. You can cross 10 yards across the office floor. You can, you can just say, what can I do for you? We can all get our hands dirty. I'll close with this story. It's from the 70s and 80s in Argentina when there's explosive growth of an outpouring of of the spirit in what was a very staunchly and often nominal Catholic country. And God was breathing in new life. And there was a a guy called Pastor Ortiz and he he became known as the pastor of the fastest growing church and it had gone from 300 very quickly to 1,000 people. Uh, And and a lot was happening on and and they were celebrating him. But he confided... You know, it wasn't great. We were 300 and we became 1,000 unloving Christians. We were an obese church. We were overweight. And one Sunday morning, he, he'd prepared his word, his sermon, and he went there pretty confident that he was going to be faithfully exhorting the people. But as he sat on the platform and he was due to speak, suddenly the Lord nailed him and said, I want you to change the message. And so the worship guys are doing their thing. They finished their last song and then... They're waiting for him to come up, and there's this really awkward, he's not coming, what's going on? And uh, eventually he stepped forward. He came up here, and he said, my text this morning is love one another. And then he went and sat back down. And his wife's up in the balcony. She's going, oh, no, he's really lost it this time. And then long, embarrassed silence, and then two minutes later, he stepped forward again. He came forward, and he said, Love one another. He sat down again. Another two minutes. Third time came up. Love one another. And then in the front row, someone turned to his neighbor and said, uh, Is there anything I can do for you? And these conversations started happening. There were 28 unemployed people in church that morning, and 28 people left with a job. And this happened, do you know what? He kept the same sermon for three months. And 300 people left the church. And he's like, good riddance. You know, that's the fact. That's the complainers. Let's get rid of them. And they're like, we're not paying the pastors to just love one another. And then after three months, he stepped forward. And he said, I have a new text. And they, <laughs> they applauded. And he said, uh, my new text is, love your neighbor as yourself. And now they'd learned. And they just left the building. And they went out there into the community. And it was just before Christmas, and they went down the street, and they they were giving away their unopened Christmas presents to people in in greater need. And he said he tried all sorts of evangelistic outreach, and and, and most of it hadn't been fruitful in the same way. And, And now people started ringing up the church and saying, is this the church that cares about people? 
Well, the Lord's done great things here, hasn't he? But when, who wants to sit on their laurels and say, aren't we great? No. There's so much more. There are so many more needs to address, you know, be it the taking in a precious, vulnerable child into your house and the cost that that involves. What is that going to look like for us? Do you, do you love much this morning? You'll love much if you realize how much you've been forgiven. It's radical grace. It's going to propel us out into our communities where there's so much need, so many people are lost. And so I want to apply that to each one of us personally as well as corporately. I want you to recognize how utterly precious you are to God, that he's picked you out of the toilet. Some of you feel so unworthy. And on one level, you're right, you're unworthy. We're all unworthy, but no, radical grace means that we are picked up and the poo from the toilet is transferred onto Jesus on the cross so that he can, you smell beautiful, you look beautiful, he loves you, he is proud of you, he embraces you, and, and that gives unbelievable security, doesn't it? And then we can get out in there and change the world. And so we're going to respond now, and the music guys come up. John, do you want to come up? And uh, there, there are various people that, uh, I, I know this is full, but uh, straight off, you know, there's a whole bunch of us that uh, we can intimately relate to that, that prostitute. And, uh, and he just wants to clean you. You know, the old is gone, the new is come. We're in new creations. And as I look at my daughter each morning, grace with utter pure love, that's how God looks at us, loves us to bits. And there are some of us who, you know, it's not sexual sin, but it's just, it's just other stuff. You just, you, you're listening to the wrong voices. You're listening to Satan's voices. And the Bible says he comes to steal and kill and destroy. And he comes to accuse. He's the father of lies. When he lies, he speaks his own language. And so you've got to stop listening to him and come this morning and receive him. And then some of us, we are Pharisees. And we've confused knowledge and intimacy. And this morning, he is offering you intimacy. And he's not impressed with your, your job title, the car you drive, you know, the verses you memorize. He's not impressed with knowledge. Please don't be like me and Jeannie. What a lameo relationship. You know, you can have an encounter with the king of kings who becomes your Abba, daddy, father, and he wants to embrace you. So let's do it. Let's respond. Do you want to stand up? And...